Hey, future applauders. Do you like talking about movies? Like smart movies? Dumb movies? Science fiction movies? Horror movies? Fantasy movies? Do you like listening to people talk about a movie longer than it would take you to actually watch the movie? Do you sit with your friends and rant at great length about things you're passionate about? You may be interested in Shocked and Applaud. Join us while we go through peculiar movies, traditional movies, movies that we just like, movies that we find are sort of like, huh? Do we follow somebody on social media and then they posted about a movie and we're just going to watch it now? Sure, why not? Our podcast is completely unscripted, so you're going to stumble through things with us because we stumble a lot. We're going to laugh. We're going to talk about what's problematic, but really it comes down to talking about movies. You can visit us at shockedandapplaud.com, on Twitter at shockedapplaud, and Facebook at shockedandapplaud. We hope to see you there. I'm Ashley Chancellor. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And this is Collateral Cinema and Spy Hard's Podcast. Welcome to Collateral Cinema, the only movie podcast that matters, where we focus on good movies, bad movies, and everything else in between in the world of cinema. We are podcasting straight from a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) I mean, somewhere in South Texas. And yes, my friends, we are a 420-friendly podcast, so whatever you have, smoke it if you've got it. Indeed, people, indeed. And today we are joined by the Spy Hards podcast. Uh, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves and uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast? Well, uh, we're not particularly intergalactic, although we have covered the Men in Black uh, films before. So we have gone where no man has gone before from time to time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're a spy movie. Yeah, we're a spy movie podcast. So every week we tackle uh, all the best and the worst of spy movies to decipher if they make what we call the knock list. And I always throw to Cam to explain what the knock list is. Yes, the knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. Um, knock is a very tortured acronym we use. We really just ripped it out of the first Mission Impossible movie. But, uh, <laughs> you know, people know the name of it. So essentially what we're looking to do is create the ultimate pantheon of spy films. So every week after we've talked about a movie, we decide, does it belong, you know, up there with like Hitchcock's North by Northwest or some of the great James Bond films? And that's sort of the... Um, kind of the button at the end of every conversation after we've broken down the movie over the course of about an hour. Wow, that's excellent. And that's a really interesting genre to get into as well, you know? I, I don't think that we've really done a whole lot of, you know, spy movies. I don't think we've done a spy movie yet. No, I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, that's actually a really, really cool angle to go at and everything. And well, I mean, if we ever do a spy movie, we'll definitely let you guys know and uh, maybe have you on that because that would be cool. Yeah, I mean, we just kind of happened upon it because Scott and I were talking a lot about James Bond. He was doing a rewatch and we were texting back and forth. And initially we were like, should we do a James Bond podcast? But there's so many out there and some really, really great ones. Plus, you're limited to like 25 official movies. 
couple other unofficial ones. Not a lot of content unless you want to start doing episode reviews of James Bond Jr. So we didn't <laughs> want to wind down that very dark road. And so we ended up going spies because you can tackle Hitchcock, Bourne movies, Mission Impossible, everything, Our Man Flint, all that sort of stuff. Oh, oh, hell I, yeah. I will say that the James Bond Jr. toys were pretty on point. <laughs> the, the game, though, I couldn't really get into. I, I never got past the first level of that game, so... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At some point, I know on Collateral Gaming, we'll probably try to do, we'll, we'll do Goldeneye. I mean, that that's just, that's a classic. There's oh, yeah, no way you, we can't do Goldeneye. Yeah, at some you, you kind of have to. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, today we are. That was our first episode. Yeah. Was it really? Oh, hell yeah. That's awesome, man. Yep. It was, yeah. <laughs> that game is classic. And. I mean, at some point, it's going to have to be touched upon. And we're definitely going to have to do a 007 movie. Um, or I think we've even talked about maybe doing Bourne at some point yeah, on Collateral Cinema. So. Yeah, we got to do one of the Bourne movies at the very least. I, and I think Robert would really like to do the Jack Reacher movies. I mean, that's kind of in the same bailiwick and everything. So, yeah, I mean, I can see us getting into this particular genre. But, uh, yeah, today we are here to talk about the Star Wars universe. Kind of a first for, no, sorry, not a first for Collateral Cinema. We just talked about it earlier because we did Rise <laughs> of Skywalker. And we yeah. did uh, Fanboys, which is related. That, that's tangential Star Wars. Yeah, it's in the actual, you know, vicinity of Star Wars. It's adjacent to Star Wars. Adjacent. But yeah. this would be the very first, like, numbered episode where we're really getting into Star Wars. Uh, and, and before, you know, we kind of had to go spoiler-free this time we are here to talk about the star wars prequel trilogy full spoilers all everything to talk about so i, I mean i guess first of all guys I, I what i really want to ask here because i i don't know what you what you came into this and or what your thoughts of the prequels above this i unironically like the prequels i think they're great they're a part of my childhood they're the star wars movies that i personally grew up with along with the original trilogy. But, I mean, a lot of people riff on them. I know that they're not perfect. I definitely see them as flawed movies. But what are your guys' perspectives? Well, I mean, Cam was uh, born a very long time ago, so maybe he should go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I grew up on the original trilogy. Um, Star Wars, the 1977 film, was one of the most impactful movies in my life. That and Jaws are kind of the two I hold up side by side. And so, like, I was really into Star Wars as a very young kid. I <laughs> went on to collect every single original vintage Star Wars action figure, Ooh. including the all-elusive Yak Face figure. I have them all. So nice. when the prequels rolled around, they were, like, a big deal for me. Very big deal. I lined up to get tickets for Phantom Menace, and I did go in costume to both episodes two and three, dressed as Darth Vader. And I'm like five foot eight, so it was not a very imposing Darth Vader, but <laughs> you know the effort was there. Uh, it was more like Dark Helmet from Spaceballs. Let's be honest. Oh, but um, <laughs> I, I've seen some Dark. I, Helmet. I, I walked out of. <laughs> I've seen some Dark Helmet cosplay that's I actually really awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, I should have gone that route. But I um, really, at the time, I was very conflicted in favor of the prequels. There was stuff I didn't like. Like, look, it was impossible to sit through episode two and see the romantic scenes with Padme and Anakin oh, and be like, oh, home my... run, home run. It's impossible but, not to um, cringe. There would be a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. There would be a lot of things about them 
I think was really effective. Like George Lucas was really pushing technology in some really interesting ways. I know we're going to talk about Jar Jar Binks. That's not what I'm talking about. You just look at some of the way he's directing action in here. Some of it's very impressive and would pave the way for stuff going forward. Um, there are movies that like, I think when you sit and watch them now, they often have issues just in terms of the way that heavy CG movies of the past do now. They don't, age the same way as practical films a lot of them look kind of sluggish and awkward and eye lines aren't necessarily perfect but i can go through them still and pick out the moments that i think are really effective because it's like as much as lucas will stumble in some of his character writing and relationships he'll have a moment that he'll just like really hit out of the park so they're kind of you know i can look at the original trilogy and just they really hold up like they're just fantastic really beginning to end you know, ignoring the fact Return is a little bit of a remake of the original. The prequels, you kind of got to pick through a bit, but there is some, you know, really great stuff in there. Indeed. And I think what's notable about the CGI effects in these movies is that you can actually really see how they progress with every movie. I mean, it gets better. Like, the Phantom Menace, some of the CGI in that is kind of showing its age a little bit to me. But when you get to, like, uh, Revenge of the Sith... I mean, it's like just leaps and bounds ahead of that. And I mean, you could really tell how Lucas was really just pushing the art form further and further. You know, it was a big deal for cinema. Uh, You know, at the time, these were the best, you know, top notch, cutting edge special effects. Uh, We really hadn't seen very much up until this point that was like this. But uh, what, what were your thoughts overall, Scott, about the Star Wars prequel trilogy? Well, I, uh, I was born in a Star Trek household. Uh, uh, some say I came out of the womb singing the original series theme tune. Hey, me too, <laughs> um, brother. That's I, I also mean, not, grew up in a Star Trek household. So, <laughs> oh yeah, and, I, and I, I'm very proud of it. I met Cam at a Star Trek convention. So just to just to show our colours there, that's that, that's where I lean. But um, you know, we had the Next Generation movies when I was a, uh, an early teen, um, and then. Around the same time, they re-released the original Star Wars films, and that's about the time I caught them. I had seen bits and bobs. Uh, I wouldn't have called myself a, a particular Star Wars fan, but when they were re-released in the cinemas, at least here in the UK, I don't know if that was an international thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, it was great. And then that really got me into it, and then I felt like when the prequels came out, it was something I could latch onto. It was a, it was my set of movies, and they're still something I defend to this day. I mean, they, as Cam said, as you guys have said, they have their faults, and we could spend hours meticulously pointing them out uh, ad nauseum and for comedy value. But I think overall, they do a, they do a lot of good, and I think they're a lot better than the sequel trilogy. Oof, oof, <laughs> hot take. Yeah, I mean, I like like I said, I liked the prequels growing up. They were um, th- they were the kind of the Star Wars that really I more identified with, kind of like what you were saying, Scott. Because uh, I mean, I grew up watching the original trilogy and the Phantom Menace together. I saw Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith in theaters. So at the time, there really wasn't much for me to pick apart. Looking back on them now, they have their faults, but I think all Star Wars movies do. (laughs) You know, I don't think that anything the prequels are guilty of, the originals are not. Uh, The originals just kind of get, they're kind of uniquely invulnerable to criticism in that, you know, they weren't already working in an established universe. And anything you add to an established universe can... Uh, 
Yeah, can, can, can be can, can can go either way. And despite the fact that it was George Lucas himself that wrote and directed the prequels, you know, you hear a lot of people saying that, you know, little George Lucas ruined my childhood, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, he created your childhood. It's his story. It's his vision. Who are you to argue? I mean, you can say what you want about Disney that Disney can or can may or may not hold to Lucas's vision. But Lucas not holding to his own vision. I mean, if anything, this is really on the nose as far as being a Star Wars movie. Like each one are really on the nose, and that's something that is kind of a hallmark of Lucas's style. You know, he's. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that he's the most subtle filmmaker out no. there. They're all silly, campy fun. I, that's what I look at when I see Star Wars, you know, just overall. They all have kooky characters, and they all have, you know, those small plot holes and contradictions. But there is also some, I think, I'll, I'll dare I say genius writing, story writing in there. And, and we'll get into that more in a little bit as we break down each episode. But, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Uh -huh. I'm very neutral when it comes to Star Wars or Star Trek. I really don't care for one over the other. I mean, I find both of them to be fine series, so I'm very lukewarm towards Star Wars, period. I mean, I, I've stated this before. I mean, my overall opinion of the series is that there's really no such thing as a really great Star Wars movie. There's good Star Wars movies, and there's really mess Star Wars movies, but none of them really, you know, none of them really transcend to become more than a sum of its parts, if you get what I mean. I understand like, what you're saying. Th I, throughout I, the whole saga. I'm a huge fan of both Star Trek and Star Wars, like, like, like yeah, you guys were saying. I mean, I... I grew up in a Star Trek household. In fact, uh, we were just let, talking with Cam earlier before we recorded, and, and uh, we were. I, I was saying that we did uh, Star Trek: The Voyage Home, and we've done Star Trek Beyond both on, on our podcast. Yeah. So we've actually went out and we've talked about those, and we've yet to actually do like a full episode on on Star Wars yet. So yeah, this is the first actual you know spoilery take on Star Wars and it's only fitting that we start with the original prequel trilogy. Right. But but I mean that's really how I feel. And the prequels watching them, I mean, I actually kinda like the Phantom Menace the most out of the three of them, honestly. It's really? it's just kind of the most fun movie out of all of them. But I mean it's not the worst, you know, movie going experience or movie watching experience. I mean Attack of the Clones really dragged, but we'll get into why here very soon. <laughs> but, I mean, overall, I think that, you know, it's a fun way to waste an evening or something like that, is just watch all three of these movies like we did last night. It, it's a great way to really just kind of relax, you know, put on something that is just fun to watch. And it, it does its job as far as Star Wars movies and as far as just, you know, good movies in general, you know, but like I said, I mean, even so that's just my stance on star Wars. I in some ways I can take it or leave it in other ways. It's like, yeah, I, I can sit down and watch it. That's my take on the prequel so far. 
I mean, I myself, I'm I am an annual in my family. We are annual Star Trek marathon. Or not Star Trek. <laughs> we are annual <laughs> Star Wars marathon watchers. Um, about at least once a year, I'll watch a good, you know, uh, uh, all six or all nine movies. Oh wow! All Depending no- at, at what point at which. Yeah, I mean, all I, nine, huh? Damn. I actually like the sequels, and and there might be more f- to talk about that later. I mean, we're mostly focused on the prequels here. Yeah, but um, yeah. But anywho, I think actually, let's go ahead and let's get into episode one, because uh, this episode we are going to be covering, in fact, this is going to be a two-part episode, so we're going to be covering episodes one, two, and three, uh, and we're going to actually break down and talk about uh, all three movies, so... Uh, you know, I figured it would make sense to kind of do this as a two-part podcast. Although it is kind of awkward splitting three movies into two parts. I don't think we need three episodes on hmm. this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a little much, I think. I think it would drag on quite a bit. So anyway, we're but let, let's kind of talk about the Phantom Menace because I mean for me, this was the one that I grew up watching the most, I think. As far back as I can remember, I was watching this on VHS again along with the originals. Um, and for a while, as, as in my early childhood memories, this is this is what we had. This was it. Um, what what did you guys think when you first watched the Phantom Menace? Oh, I walked out happy. I walked out so excited, so on top of the world because of things like the pod race sequence and the you know duel of the fates, you know triple prong finale. There, it's like the first time through. I really was putting aside things like you know midichlorians and it's not just midichlorians like i'm not a big fan of the midichlorians as an introduction into the franchise but like that whole section on um naboo really or not naboo sorry on tatooine really does take its time to a degree that my whole thing with um the prequels is when you look at the original star wars they understood pace very very well and that's something that the prequels i always felt kind of lost and it's very evident when you get to the middle sections of Phantom Menace. But I went and saw this movie in theaters six times. And so oh, it's wow. like I was just so excited to be <laughs> wrapped up in the world of Star Wars again and just, you know, seeing droids again, seeing all the aliens, all the practical costumes on display are so beautiful. Um, just the settings going back to Tatooine. There's a lot of atmosphere to this movie. Like often on Spy Hearts, we talk sometimes about these like more slow-paced Bond movies or other spy films in the genre. And some of them are like hangout movies where you're just kind of content to be with the characters. And that was sort of, I think, a little bit of the vibe for me the first time through of watching Phantom Menace was I was just so excited to be back hanging out in the universe. I didn't really care if the story had a lot of forward momentum. That came into play more so on the rewatches at home over the years. For me... um, I was I was 12 when this film came out, so I wasn't really at the stage where I could go to the theatre multiple times. I did see it in cinema, so. But there's a there's a very good reason why I was thrown out of a shopping centre here in London, <laughs> dressed as Darth Maul with a two sided lightsaber trying to fight people. Yes, that <laughs> happened. Uh, Amazing. And we also filmed it for my for my school's film studies class that i was doing at the time it was like a comedy show thing so it's like it was like a it's a, it's a prank bro uh, that, that kind of thing so yeah trust me i was well into the phantom menace and i i had the full-size darth maul lightsaber i had all the figures from the film uh, i still have the uh i think it's the naboo fighter jet that yellow and silver thing i've still got that somewhere 
uh, laying around. I of the of the two of the three films, this was probably the second most impactful on my life in terms of films. So yeah, I I, I like this one a lot, and I would this is the one I'll probably go back to the most out of the three, mostly for Jewel of the Fates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I remember too also as a Star Wars collector racing to the department stores to buy up all the um, episode one figures before the movie even opened because I was convinced that I was going to be, you know, scoring a windfall in terms of, you know, 10 years down the road, I'm going to be rich. And boy, was I wrong. I have those still in a box in my closet. And I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> well, I might be showing my age here. I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you guys, but uh, I don't remember the Phantom Menace in cinema, so I didn't really get to experience that. Fortunately, we watched Fanboys, which was kind of a window into what yeah. that was like for upcoming Star Wars fans. I, I believe like like people were going nuts about Star Wars returning for the first time in 20 years. They really were. I mean, I went and saw it first run. Like, actually. Yeah. Like, I mean, although I don't really recall a bunch of people, uh, you know, camping around the... Uh, the, the the theater or whatever because uh-huh. i mean I, I think we uh, actually went and saw a later viewing of it that day not premiere night yeah no yeah it was a later viewing and i mean it was a great experience and i guess that's why maybe i have a more nostalgic view of the phantom menace to yeah. me because that was really the first actual star wars movie that i got to experience in theaters you know it's it's kind of like recently you know, a few years ago, we did the Halloween 2018. That was the first Halloween movie I'd actually seen in theaters. You know, so that was a kind of exciting experience for me. And yeah. it's kind of the same way with Phantom Menace, you know. I mean, I kind of link it back to that good memory going with my friends and the, and the my friend's dad and everything. And, I mean, it was entertaining on the big screen back then, you know. it. I mean, that's one thing you could say about George Lucas is that he knows how to make his movies just cinematically unique in a way that you know it adds to the experience of being in a theater they're real theater movies you know? yes 100 percent. I, I definitely think that they fill that cinematic quality and, and it's obvious that george has a vision and sometimes we may disagree with that vision his vision actually consistently appears to change every few years yeah and he apparently. doesn't he doesn't sometimes he's not quite sure which character shot which character first or <laughs> it's like come on george you should have had that figured out there's earlier. even been a couple changes i think made to the prequels less so than the originals i'm not mistaken yeah they did and that la- they later yeah, changed I, it to cg yeah what the hell i mean weirdly I- like the puppet in phantom menace really looked bad like the puppet in empire and return is phenomenal that puppet is giving a genuine performance the one in phantom menace back when i saw it in 99 it looked like bad it looked like Mm. something you would see in like a knockoff horror movie or something like it was very strange how you know with um you know two decades of development that's what they wound up with yeah it's kind of like uh the third teenage mutant ninja turtles movie with the special effects on that how that took a dive in quality you know it was very disappointing. And yeah, seeing mm-hmm. Yoda in that state, it's like, oh, come on. And this was probably the first time I've seen the movie since they uh, fixed it. So I thought that it looked pretty good. The CGI in the first movie, it it was okay. Yeah. The, the, the Yoda character was okay, I guess. I, you know, you know I, I think that, yeah, the, the CG version, which I've seen far more of than, than I've seen the original theatrical version, uh, holds up. I know in episode two... 
they really needed to show Yoda in action, and that's why they started using CG in that one. And so I guess to kind of update the more modern movie, or maybe there was enough criticism and, and or feedback about how bad he looked in Phantom Menace that they went and changed it. Uh, I'm just glad that the original movies, they've kept the, the uh, puppet scenes intact, and Lucas hasn't... Yeah, he hasn't gone and fucked those up. He hasn't gone and <laughs> fucked those up. Well, I mean, it's doubtful that he's going to be able to now. It's not really in his hands anymore. But no. um, I will say that the uh, the Grogu puppet in uh, The Mandalorian was quite good. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, it's, it's just they really seem to understand puppetry really well on The Mandalorian. Even, you know what, I'll give them credit as well in... Um, in um, The Last uh, Jedi, the uh, Yoda puppet there was fairly effective, too. I was about to say, The Last Jedi looked pretty good, too, yeah. Um, for what it's worth, you know, I obviously have my problems with The Last Jedi and where it took the story, but I think oh, as a standalone movie, it's it's actually great. But anywho, The Phantom Menace is, is a movie that I have, I think, the most memories of. I think I've seen it probably more than any other Star Wars film. Uh, growing up, I think, I, I really kind of I, I identified with uh, Jake Lloyd's portrayal of, of, of Anakin and it's funny because that kid got so much hate later <laughs> he really did like in a, in a rational amount of hate and that was kind of the first portent uh, how the fan base was gonna go I Star mean, Wars was the, is among the most toxic fandoms it is they're, they're, they're just a tier below Rick and Morty fans oh <laughs> oh, I'm not even wearing a Rick and Morty shirt, and that just pains me. It's a me. good show. The it fans just suck, me. and the yeah. same holds for Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I spend enough time in shitposting groups to even see the worst of it, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, him and Ahmed Best, who I believe, right, Who's this, that's the actor for Jar Jar, if I'm not mistaken, that was his name. Yeah, he actually really got a lot of hate. And then we'll get into the Jar Jar character here in just a bit. But um, I actually liked Anakin. And even looking back now, I don't know why people had a problem with that portrayal. I mean, he acts like a nine or 10 year old kid pretty well, actually. <laughs> I will say some of his line I, deliveries are a little yeah. ham handed. But he's nine years old. Of course mm -hmm. they are. <laughs> well... I, I think he gave the performance he was coached to give. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when you have, you know, with so often, and Scott and I have tackled this a few times now, when you're dealing with child actors, they often say the credit, you know, a big chunk of the credit for how good the kid is able to deliver is based on either their adult co-stars they're working closely with. So, for example, Bruce Willis opposite Haley Joel Osment or the director. And George Lucas is not an actor's director at all. He's proven that time and time again. No. And I think he would own that. And I think you had this kid who in many ways was left out to dry. Um, you know, Liam Neeson has talked as well as Ewan McGregor about how much they were struggling with acting opposite so much green screen mm. and kind of stiffer dialogue at a time where this was very new. So were they there really to be able to help Jake Lloyd along? Maybe not as much. And so you have a kid being given a lot of doofy lines like, you know, wizard and this is pod racing and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and he's kind of just like, there it is folks. And I always thought one of the weirdest things Lucas said was he, he never really came out to defend a lot of the Jake Lloyd hatred around at the time, but he did say, I don't understand why people are so angry. This is, you know, star Wars is clearly a children's film. I was making a children's movie like Lassie. And I would be like, that doesn't make any sense. You open with this whole thing about like 
trade embargoes and like all of this politics. <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? They're very political. Uh, the Star Wars prequels are very political, especially the Phantom Menace. Um, a lot of people, I think, felt that it was it was boring, you know, with the whole plot being uh, the Trade Federation blockading, you know, the planet of Naboo. It, it's, it's it's some it's some very dense political machinations going on there that, you know, yeah, I mean, even first couple of times that I watched it, it went over my head. I mean, I understand it now, oh, yeah. now that I have a better understanding of politics in the real world. But I mean, yeah, you know, with like trade embargoes and, you know, like blockades and whatnot. But I mean, it's like, yeah, that's a lot for like a kid to take in. So it's like, George, what the hell are you talking about? To be fair, when I was a kid, because I was a kid that watched this, right? So for me, all of that went over my head, and I was just focused on the lightsabers and the action. So yeah, and it actually worked for me. So that I guess that kind of goes yeah. to show. Uh, but to be fair, I was a fan of Gundam Wing back in the day, and you pretty much have to have like a degree in political science to understand that goddamn series. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. I'm talking out my ass, maybe. But I, I will say about the Trade Federation stuff. I mean, as I also agree, I watched. Just as a, a young adult, I was, as I say, I think 12 or something. I didn't care. I was there for the double-sided lightsaber. That's, uh, that's yes. my jam, yo. But um, I will say in retrospect, it, I think the whole Trade Federation, all that sort of stuff, is Star Wars trying to be Star Trek. And that's not really. It's playing. It, it's stomping ground. Star Wars is fantasy, not fiction. And I think they should have stuck in their lane more with the sort of the gods and all the weird sciencey wizardy powers. I actually agree with you. I, th I think like the trade federation work as sort of a sketched in villain for the movie. Like if I was a kid and I was fairly young, you know, I was um, what, like 18 when I saw this. So, you know, not necessarily watching Igmar Bergman films or something like that at that point in my life. Um, and it, it, to me, the, that stuff I could kind of just accept as villains. I think where it lost me when it got political was, all the stuff to do with like Chancellor Valorum and votes of no confidence and stuff like that. That's where I was like, what is going on? Yeah, they, they may as well just <laughs> given uh, all the theater goers a copy of uh, Robert's Rule of Law or something like that. Robert's Rule of Order or whatever that book is, you know? <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, you, it, it's pretty much a civics lesson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the politics I don't think are as written well here in The Phantom Menace as they are later. I think that uh, Revenge of the Sith and, and even Attack of the Clones do that a little bit better because there is a political story to tell. In fact, we watched a YouTube review where they kind of really went into uh, where Lucas was probably going with uh, a critique on, on capitalism. And Yeah, um, it, it's definitely a critique of capitalism and also a little bit of a critique of fascism, of how it, that leads to fascism a little bit. Star Wars has always been a take on imperialism, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of always been the thing. And, and what the prequels were trying to set up is how the Republic became the Empire. And what we come to find out is that you know, basically they were kind of well on their way and the Jedi for all that they stood for were being manipulated and had fallen into a more dogmatic worldview. And, and that's where we enter. You know, people, I think.
refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. You believe it's this boy? He can see things before they happen. He can help you. The force is unusually strong with him. He was meant to help you. Anakin! Tell him to take off! If I ever see you again, what does your heart tell you? Are you sure about this? Trusting our fate to a boy we hardly know? Anakin Skywalker, meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. I sense much fear in you. The boy is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. We're more, probably more expecting a world similar to like the old Republic. Yeah, probably. You know, I mean, but this is this is well after the fact. This is the downfall, and so um, Episode One, of course, sets into motion the machinations that eventually would 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 you know become or evolve into uh, the straight up coup d'état in Episode Three. So. Here we've got the Trade Federation who are a puppet villain, you know, obviously being controlled by Darth Sidious. Now, for anyone that had watched the original trilogy, obviously it was obvious that Palpatine was Sidious. I mean, he's be being played by Ian McDermott, the same actor. But for me as a kid, actually, there was a little bit of that. Uh, I don't think I, I was quite had quite caught on to that until episode three, <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> even though it's in your face and it's obvious the entire time. But uh, I, I mean, I, I later came out understanding that he was always meant to, but uh, Ian McDiarmid actually really brings uh, performance. I think in all three movies, he, yeah, I, I kind of feel like in many ways, the, the entire arc of the prequels is pretty much Palpatine's story. It's his story really. You know, it's a the story of, ways, of yeah. it's a story of how he came to power, how he was pretty much given more power, which has real world parallels, I might add. And, and you know, he's playing the strings on both sides. He's controlling both the the Jedi through the Senate, and he's also controlling the Sith, and 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 you know, uh, it's and, and the Separatists later on. But it's 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 actually quite brilliant, you know, what he had to go through. Maybe a little bit incredulous i mean there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief there but of course there are the fan theories that maybe sidious you know was well versed in the dark force and was managing to convince people that way and yeah. i kind of see that as well as him just being a really smart dude and and you know arguably the most powerful figure in in the star wars canon arguably arguably yeah. <laughs> although it was stupid how they shoehorned him back in in the sequels very yeah. stupid I kind of feel like that was almost yeah. where that yeah. needed to go, though. Oh, I agree. Well. I, I don't know, man. I mean, that was what, just a what? little... Through, uh, through Fortnite. Fortnite? Yeah. didn't need to go through Fortnite, I don't think. What? Yeah. That, that's, how, that's how they announced the, uh, the city is returning in Fortnite. Oh, oh yeah, no. that's right. God damn it. I remember that. <laughs> God damn fucking Fork Knife. Fork Shit. Knife. God damn it. Damn it. But yeah, the, the Phantom Menace yeah. uh, has plenty of colorful characters. It's an odd movie that its its main plot is so political, but uh, it, it's it's 
I think the silliest out of the three movies. Uh, it, of course, we've got the introduction of we've got to talk about it. Jar Jar Binks. First off, let me get this out of the way. I will die on this hill. Jar Jar Binks <laughs> is a great character, and he is no less kooky than C-3PO or R2-D2 in the original trilogy. All right? He serves the comic relief. He is a great character, and also he is a Dark Lord of the Sith. He is 100% a Sith Lord. 100%. I, I, I agree with that fan theory. It, I mean, yeah, he's the one who pretty much hands the Empire to Palpatine on a silver platter. He's the one who did that. And he he didn't even like talk to Padme about that at all. I always thought it was very frustrating how um, there was so much blowback on Jar Jar in, in part one mm-hmm. that they chickened out in the future. They were like, okay, give him like, I don't know, like two or three scenes in episode two and like one silent moment in episode three. I always thought it would have been far more interesting if, you know, we have Jar Jar engaged in a war here at the end of episode one there's a time jump into episode two like what is jar jar after several years of maturity perhaps in the gungan army i thought there would have been ways to really develop that character and mature him in a way that fans would have been able to walk out being like oh like this character's really changed and i like what they're doing with him because ahmed best is a very talented voice actor you could have done things with that i i always was kind of bugged that these kind of cut bait on him i i don't like him particularly in phantom menace I think a lot of the very like childish comedy they make out of him is really frustrating. Like it's a lot of, you know, stepping in like, I don't know, alien poop and Mm -hmm. things like that. Having his tongue grabbed. I I like the visual. Like, I think it was a really interesting visual. We saw so many CG characters that came after Jar Jar who looked like hot garbage. And I think Jar Jar actually holds up fairly well especially in comparison to a lot of the other ones that came up around his time i just think there was some like real misconceived ideas i have real questions about george lucas writing this particular character and what he was going for with the speech patterns and everything it's like it's a little uncomfortable and seems like out of touch old white man kind of stuff (laughs) where i don't even know if he had any (laughs) ill intentions I don't I don't I don't necessarily know if George Lucas had ill intentions or was trying to make a mockery of anyone when he wrote it. But, the, but it's the, almost like he was blind to what the potential effect could be. Yeah, the coding is pretty much right there. Uh, there's a, a story that Kevin Smith uh, gave when back in the day uh, when the uh, Phantom Menace came out. Uh, he was at the premiere and he was with Chris Rock. And apparently when uh, Jar Jar Binks came up after they saw the movie, like Chris Rock said something along the lines like, man, I was expecting him to start picking space cotton like at any moment. <laughs> oh, it's no. like, yeah, that that coding is there. It's very noticeable. And it, I mean, whether or not Lucas was aware of it, I, I don't know. Probably not. He seems like the kind of guy that would be oblivious like that. at least to me well i remember there was criticism of the nimodians too you know the trade federation aliens who have very strong like asian accents like stereotypical yeah and i remember like lucas yeah and i seem to recall like lucas said something like well i wanted them to seem kind of like foreigners um who weren't necessarily from the parts of the galaxy we're familiar with and it's like okay Right when you explain it that way, it doesn't come across great, George. <laughs> no, that, I just cringed hard right right there. Oh, oh no. man. Yeah, it's yeah. not so great. But, I mean, Jar Jar, I think, is, he serves his purpose as comic relief. It's a little bit childish, but, again, you have to remember, 
as Lucas says, it is it it is written for children. I mean, there. Are, I think Star Wars, like a lot of things, there are parts meant for adults and parts meant for children. I think it, simultaneously, his 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 goal needed to be to appease fans of the original trilogy, but also appease you know the newcomers to the Star Trek. Wars franchise, <laughs> you know, the kids who would be growing up like the kids who grew up with the original. So it's a hard line, you know, to, to, to take. And especially, you know, you get into episode three, which I think is quite a bit more mature than the other two movies. Uh, and it definitely has darker source material. Uh, that, that's why I say episode one does stick out a lot, quite a bit, as, as being the most cartoony. But again, for me, it's just very nostalgic. I watch this film and and it's almost like a blanket. <laughs> yeah, like I said before, I mean, just having that first movie going experience with the Phantom Menace, it's like, yeah, it, it makes this kind of the go-to movie for me in the prequel trilogy. And we have to talk about two scenes in particular. They were name dropped already, but before we move on to episode two, we definitely need to talk about the pod racing scene and we need to talk about the duel of the fate scene. <laughs> Arguably two of the best scenes in the entire movie. I think that the pod racing scene just completely steals the movie. They they could have made that the the central focal point of the entire movie and it wouldn't have lost a beat. They spun off an entire game that's one of the best racing games of all time. Exactly. Off of that one scene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just downloaded it on my Switch and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Star Wars 1. I still love that off. game as well. It's a great game. It is. Yeah, it really I, is. I remember like the... There was so much buildup to that pod race in theaters. I actually read the novelization for episode one they put out before the movie came out. They would never do that nowadays. And the novelization is actually a lot grittier in a lot of places. I actually, in some ways, appreciate the storytelling of the novelization more than the actual movie in some ways. But um, the pod race was just such a visual feast. It had a lot of uh, nods to Ben-Hur that I was really digging at that point because that was a movie I'd grown up watching because of my dad. Um, yeah, yeah. And just like the variety of all the characters, like one of the great joys of the original trilogy is going to places like Maz Eisley, Jabba's Palace, seeing like all the different looking aliens. And the uh, pod race was just full of them, you know, and you had all the weird pod racers, Team Topagalese, uh, Odie Mandrell, all these really remarkable, memorable designs that to me, I still remember what they look like. And I will always laugh at that moment where there's the one that's kind of the crocodile looking dude with the goggles like crashing and making that like kind of noise that always makes me laugh didn't they have that wilhelm scream was that it was that in the pod racing part or was that later no on? yeah there, there's definitely wilhelm screams all over this movie <laughs> and all over the trilogy in general just all over the series in general. Ah! oh my god Mm -hmm. Hey, Bo, in post, just throw in the actual Wilhelm scream instead of my voice. There. Okay, you want me to put in a Wilhelm scream? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We can do that. <laughs> yeah, but I think one advantage that the prequels do have, uh, and, and especially when we look into episode one and when we finally get to see this firsthand, is that uh, they have the special effects technology to really form a spectacle, a spectacle about the universe. Um, the one advantage that they have over the originals is that, you know, you really had uh, a better way to show all of these different alien races and, and to get these, you know, landscapes and, and, and especially, you know, like that pod racing scene is, is really cool. You know, I like what you said, Cam, where 
you have all of the aliens in one place together. Uh, and it's a very tight scene. I mean, it, it's, it's directed uh, a lot like a car movie would be for just that one part of the movie. And, and you see all three circuits. Yeah, yeah. For a moment, it almost is presented as if it's an actual broadcast of a pod race from this planet, like being broadcast all over the galaxy. Like, that's kind of how it's presented. I'm, I'm surprised that Lucas didn't even put, like, TV style graphics and that kind of presentation, you know, that actually would have been funny because it was practically already there, kind of. Like you even had the announcer that was translating in two different languages. I would bet that, like, if you asked George Lucas what he was the most excited filming for this movie, it would be bits like the Pod Race. I do not think he's mentioning anything about you know Tatooine scenes with Liam Neeson and Jake Lloyd. I think his heart is in this pod race sequence. It really is. And I, I think that's why it really stands out the most, probably out of the entire trilogy, honestly. It's because, I mean, th this is uh, one of those moments where Lucas will really actually throw a lot of love into what he's doing. It, it's where, well, it's immediately one of the scenes I think of when I think of the prequels, you know? And, and, and I think that it's uh, easily, easily one of the, uh, the better scenes in, in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, it's, it's uh, either that scene or the memes from, uh, like, uh, Revenge of the Sith, you know? The say memes. what you will about the Star Wars prequel trilogy. They are memetic as hell. All the memes. I think people either, you fall into two groups. People that iron, unironically like the prequels and people who ironically like them. Either way, <laughs> you gotta love the memes. <laughs> now, this is podcasting. <laughs> Yeah, no shit. <laughs> this is podcasting. You like that? All right. Oh yeah, I like that. <laughs> I think we're gonna change our tag our tagline now. This is podcasting. This is Lateral podcasting. What, what what do you think, Scott? Uh, the pod racing scene. I don't really think it sticks in my mind too much compared to some of the other scenes in this film. I'm I'm a big fan of just watching people sit around in Naboo. And, and underwater Gungan scenes, that's what I'm here for, mostly. All right. But um, I played... Uh, can, we can we swear on this podcast? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I, I played the shit out of that pod racing game. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I unlocked... I unlocked all the races, all the tracks. I remember playing, I had that on PC. I remember playing it for hours on end. And I think I got more enjoyment out of that game than that scene. <laughs> that game is fucking awesome like i said i just got i just purchased it on my switch it was like 15 bucks so worth it i want to say that they might have done a master treatment of it kind of it looks a little bit better than i would expect a nintendo 64 playstation one era game to look or, or maybe that was just that yeah i think that it was a pretty high-end game at the time when yeah. it came out it was at least on the same mm -hmm. level as something like goldeneye or you know like mario yeah, it looks better than Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask do, actually. Yeah. And yeah. that's saying a lot because those, those are uh, the Zelda series is my favorite franchise, but um, in, in the world of gaming. But yeah, that pod racing game is, is fucking awesome. It really and, is. And the pod racing scene, I think, is, is one of the things that a lot of people think of. Now, for me, my personal favorite. Uh, of course, is, is the final scene, you know. You know, this is what you came for. When you were going to go watch Star Wars Episode One. you were going to watch it because you saw that there was a dude in there that looked cool as hell with a double-bladed red lightsaber. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, Darth Maul is just such a striking figure in this he entire one hundred percent the Boba Fett of the prequel trilogy, because he's the one character that had a lot of hype. They built a lot of toys for, and he's kind of barely in the movie. He's not in it enough, but. Every scene that he's in is awesome. <laughs> and he's kind of beloved a little bit amongst the fandom, you know, as far as the villains are concerned. Yeah, and, and kudos to Ray Park. I don't think he's actually ever come back to reprise the role. I think they had a different guy in uh, Clone Wars and Rebels, and I think they used a different guy in Solo as well. Yeah. It was, no, he played the role in Solo, but uh, it was a different voice actor. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Did they use the same uh, mm -hmm. voice actor from Clone Wars and Rebels? or? Yeah, they did for Solo. For Solo. That makes sense. Um, and we'll talk about the Clone Wars, I, I think, a little bit next part, because that, that's definitely worth mentioning when you're mentioning the prequels. But, um, yeah, Darth Maul was awesome. Uh, John Williams, of course, kills it. You know, you can you can feel his presence throughout the film. John Williams definitely has those, that those just those little... Um, I don't know what to say, those little flourishes that he does. I mean, you get the same thing when you watch Harry Potter. But, uh, I mean, he just really kills it with Duel of the Fates, one of the best Star Wars tracks. And if anybody liked anything about the prequel trilogy, it was probably Duel of the Fates. I think, uh, honestly, like when you look at that prequel trilogy, the highest you know, compliment or the, the best thing that came out of it, I should say, is that Williams you know, set of albums because I think his music across all three films is astonishing stuff. And, uh, it, you know, I went and saw um, Star Wars in concert uh, quite a few years ago. It was hosted by um, Anthony Daniels, who plays C-3PO, and they would play montages of Star Wars scenes, a lot of footage from the prequels, and play the John Williams music. And essentially you're watching silent films happening because all the dialogue's been silenced. And the movies work because of his music carrying you through them. And Duel of the Fates is probably the high bar mark for the prequel trilogy. And so much credit is also deserved for uh, Ray Park and just the fight choreography going on there. You know, the way he makes um, Darth Maul's fighting so acrobatic. We'd never seen anything like that. I remember, you know, sitting there in the theater and just being blown away. Like, I never thought we would ever have a lightsaber fight like this. And when people, um, you know, even the most ardent haters of Phantom Menace will always go, well, you know, the duel of the fates lightsaber scene is pretty good, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Usually, exactly. Yeah. If, if people like one thing, it's that. And, you know, it definitely was just such a huge monumental moment, I think, for Star Wars, because go back to A New Hope and look at the, the fight scene between uh, Obi-Wan and, and Darth Vader. I mean, it's it's kind of like looking back at it now um and, and yep. I, I know uh, there's there is actually like a fan reimagining of the scene that's really good that i've seen on youtube that kind of brings into that a little bit more of that that flourish that you see in, in the duels of, of the original trilogy yeah. but yeah we really got to see that for the first time it's two jedi versus one that has a double-bladed lightsaber it's cool as hell and then of course you get emotional moments like uh you know the death of qui-gon jinn and then obi-wan just kind of taking the lead there and jumping up and and, and finishing off maul although Though, of course, we later learn he did actually finish him off. But yeah, <laughs> I think I think the most remarkable thing about the uh, Darth Vader versus Obi-Wan fight from A New Hope is that it feels more like a traditional kendo match in a way. 
Like I mean, that's it's, true. It's kind of framed that way. I mean, it's very much like it has the they have the stances and everything. You I think know? the in-universe explanation is that that is a different style of lightsaber combat. If I'm not mistaken, there's like they have different styles and yeah, like those weird tricks that they seem to do where they fling their lightsabers around. I mean, that's not just some Power Rangers shit. There's actually like a lore explanation. I see, and, and well, it obviously has a lot of that wire foo quality to it a little bit. I mean, let, let's not act like Hong Kong action movies and martial arts movies didn't have an influence on this. I'm, I'm not that kind of Star Wars geek, by the way. I couldn't tell you the difference between the different types of, of, yeah. of lightsaber <laughs> combat, um, but I, I do know that that's a thing. I've spent at least enough time around the Star Wars wiki to kind of yeah see remnants of that. But yeah, 100% duel of the fate scene is so cool the score is just incredible that is i i think peak star wars that that's that's a, one of the moments of peak star wars but i guess let's go ahead and get into episode two here so uh because we're, we're actually running almost at an hour now but um episode two attack of the clones first thoughts guys uh, <laughs> that's yeah that that's my entire response to that movie. It's just every single romantic scene between Padme and Anakin. Oh, God. Oh, I'm, like, cringing inside so badly. Okay, yeah, let's get it out of the way. It's cringy as hell. Yes. Looking See, back I, at it now. But, but, you know, I will say this. I don't like sand. It's coarse. It's coarse. And it's rough. It's, it's rough. irritating. Yeah. I don't like sand at all. <laughs> much like this film is much like this film oh uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah definitely yeah. it's the weakest out of the three for me and it's and it's one i think it's if if not for the last jedi it would probably be my least favorite star wars film i'm just gonna go ahead and say that that doesn't mean it's bad that doesn't mean that there's anything good about it it's it, just it's just the weakest one out of these three. It's the weakest one here. And a lot of that is because it's been so much time on on uh and Hayden Christensen, who really hadn't bloomed yet, or maybe he just wasn't given good enough material yet, because we see him, we see him do a quite a bit more competently in the next film. But if this film had spent more time on Ewan McGregor, I think it would have been better, and less less on Anakin's bloom, blossoming romance with Padme. It's like we get it; he's really, really, really creepy, and for some reason, she's into that. <sighs> <laughs> oh, God. he's like every yeah. incel. I think, the pro <laughs> I think the problem is too like you have two main plots going on here one is the romance which is dead on arrival no one uh really enjoys that romance in these movies um and then the secondary is obi-wan going on this mission to determine you know what's going on with clones and what have you it's a little convoluted there's trips to a diner things like that. Uh, there's bits of that I like. I, I genuinely still enjoy all the Django Fett stuff, Alan Genosha, you know, elements like that. Um, actually, I don't think it was Genosha. I think that's the actual planet where they have the uh, Coliseum fight, but yeah, my uh, prequel planets are a little mixed up in my head. At the Camino. Is Camino? Camino. Camino. Camino, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yes. Camino is the cloning facility. Yeah, like, so there's like little stops along the way that I enjoy, but like, the Obi-Wan story, though, broken down, is pretty thin. And it just kind of feels like, once again, you're removing um, Ewan McGregor from the action. The um, Phantom Menace did that, too. It sidelined him almost the entire time on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. And then here, it's like, okay, you go off on your own little story by yourself to track down a character named Count Dooku, who we have no idea who it is. 
it's a little strange in terms of just plotting. Yeah, we don't have much of an introduction to Dooku, really. Do but we? once he I does mean, come on screen, Christopher Lee brings it in full, because I've said this before, and I'll say it again. That man is a living badass. Well, okay, he's not a living badass anymore, but he is a, he was a living badass. <laughs> he is a... That dude was hardcore. He's, that's, this is the dude that told Peter Jackson, that's not what stabbing someone in the, in the back sounds like. This is what it sounds like. <laughs> I've actually heard that shit. Um, it's like, who, who would win in a fight? Christopher Lee or uh, Werner Herzog? And, and, and despite his <laughs> advanced age, I don't know how much of it is stunt work. Or, or, and there's definitely a lot of CG, and, uh, and there's that one particular scene in Revenge of the Sith that's kind of bad. <laughs> what, are, whoa, whoa, whoa. what are you talking about? That was all him doing the pirouettes. That was all Christopher Lee. Wow. He's more CG than Jar Jar Binks in this movie. <laughs> it, it really is, man. It's kind of disconcerting in some moments. But uh, yeah, I mean, he brings it in terms of personality. I mean, I totally believe it. But I agree with you. It is weird to introduce this character who I, I guess they're trying to kind of set up a mystery, but they don't really give you a reason to care about the mystery. Yeah, you would figure that Dooku would have been a presence uh, somewhere along the line in the Phantom Menace, even just early on. Like well, there could have been some way to establish him there. He that is the apprentice sense. following Maul, though. That's the yeah, only problem okay. with that, and there's only yeah. two Sith at a time. But, um, but yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, it's it is a bit odd that uh, that that you know we're introduced to this character, and who ends up playing a pivotal role. I mean, he comes in and he even returns for Episode Three, but uh, you know, there, there's very little to go off of at first. But anyway, uh, Episode Two, though, I think really does shine coming at the end i mean the third act of the movie is, is where it picks up of course where we finally get the clones in action and of course we're like oh those look like stormtroopers what's going on here but you know we're, we, the, the, when they do show up it's awesome uh the whole geonosis fight before that with all the jedi in the coliseum i mean that's kind of what we what, what what we want out of star wars right there is that particular moment i think you mentioned something about that Bo. yeah man i mean oh, we were watching it yeah, it's like all the Jedi just show up and they're just kicking ass and then they start to get their asses kicked a little bit in the middle and then the clones come in. And then, yeah, it's it's the best part of the movie, honestly. Everything else is just such a slog to get through, you know, to get to that moment. Yeah, and honestly, it's funny too because when you play like the Lego version of the of, of the of uh, the Lego Star Wars version of this, they kind of go right into Geonosis pretty early on because there's not a lot of action before that point. <laughs> exactly, uh, I remember that actually clearly in that game. But yeah, once you do get there, uh, the Droid Factory scene is kind of cool for the spectacle of it, but. Uh, that whole scene with all of that flashing green and blue. And then we finally get to see Samuel motherfucking L. Jackson in action with his purple ass lightsaber. Why? Because Samuel L. Jackson wanted a purple lightsaber. So he got a purple lightsaber. Yeah. Yeah. He, you give Samuel L. Jackson what he wants. Always. Always. At all times. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome to see an army of Jedi take on a bunch of, I wish they had better opponents than like these droid soldiers that are incompetent. Roger, Roger. But, um, you know, like, it would have been cool to have them actually up against clone soldiers or something like that. Like, at least someone who could actually maybe hold up uh, some end of their battle. But um, just seeing that general spectacle. And, you know, a lot of this was drawn from, like, the original John Carter story. So that when the John Carter movie came out a handful of years later and had the battle with the white apes in the Coliseum, everyone just looked at it and said, 
it looks like Attack of the Clones. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Lucas Lucas ripped it off before they could actually get John Carter to the screen. Um, it's elements like that that I think tap into what Star Wars does best, which is that swashbuckling sci-fi fantasy sort of adventure style, which is in throughout the original trilogy that so often it feels like they're trying to push back throughout these, you know, prequel trilogy. And I, I think a lot of that, maybe Scott can agree with me here is that it's sort of like when Gene Roddenberry does the original Star Trek and he's like, you know, I want a spirit of adventure. I want that sort of JFK optimism, you know, we had at the time. And then when like he suddenly came back to do, you know, the first couple seasons of TNG, Roddenberry took himself very seriously and he was imparting a grand philosophy to mankind. And people were like, this isn't very good Star Trek. <laughs> somewhere along the way, Gene Roddenberry, somewhere he became this like religious symbol, Gene Roddenberry. Even now, people still refer to him as this like, as the gospel of Gene. And whereas yeah. he wasn't a very great man, if you know your history, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he wrote some good science fiction or well, made some good science fiction um yeah so i definitely get that sense of grandeur what i want to say about that maybe just that fight at the end but it, it's one thing that i think george lucas did well with these films is uh, sort of that sense of economy and holding things back even if you go back to darth maul just to bounce back the phantom for a second you don't see the second blade until the final battle it's just one one blade but you know he has two you know it's in there and you have to wait, 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 wait until you see it. And in this, you know at some point there's going to be a battle because they're talking about clone armies. and You see them all. You know, there's going to be a big F-off battle at some point. And they wait till like the last few, like the last 10, 15 minutes to go, here you go. Here's your lightsaber, big fucking battle where everyone's shooting at each other. And I think that pays off. Just unfortunately, there's a lot of bogginess to go through before we get there. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's... And you look at like the action direction, there's some really cool things he's got, you know, with um, digital zooms, like just using CG um, sequences where he's actually zooming in the camera in interesting ways and ways we would see other directors pick up on and carry through into modern day action that you see, you know, when they're using largely virtual, you know, characters in a CG realm. Um, there's some really cool technological stuff. It's just that so often in these prequels, and I think this is the one that falls the most victim to it of any of them, he's kind of stranding his actors in sort of a uh, technological wasteland that doesn't really allow them to be their best. And that's where really, you know, things like the romance and the Obi-Wan story just kind of fall to the wayside in terms of what we really talk about. Because we're talking about episode two. We're not talking about character journeys. We're talking about set pieces. We're talking about character designs. Big when you're talking about the original Star Wars, you're going to probably talk about a lot of the character moments and quote things Han Solo said or, you know, some of the funny Luke lines. The prequels don't really give you that. So you're kind of left to just admire the craftsmanship of these big sequences. I will say, though, I want it on record. I do not like the droid factory. I don't like it at all. And I don't <laughs> like how we have C-3PO bumbling through this whole finale with his head being dragged around. That was so weird to me. Like it, the whole 3PO thing. Almost sadistic towards 3PO. And it, it, does, it feels very unearned. I'm like, George Lucas, do you hate C-3PO? Yeah, what the fuck, man? <laughs> and also, uh, R2 is kind of a dick. He just pushed C-3PO into the droid factory to fall to his death. So yeah, what what the hell, D2? Shit. I'll tell you what, though. R2 knows everything. It's only it's only 3PO that got his mind wiped at the end of episode three. That's so true. He, look, he knows exactly who at, Anakin is. Look into those soulless, 
lights of Farai's, and and you'll know that R two knows everything. Is is R two uh, is is R two like chaotic, like lawful or something like that? <laughs> is that what he is? Is he just an agent of chaos? He's an agent of chaos. But yeah, I definitely agree. The movie does drag on quite a bit before we get to you know the moments that we're waiting for. Of course, we do get introduced to Django Fett with the clone story on Camino, and and when you're going between romance, really bad romance, and uh, and you know the the side plot for Obi Wan, this is the one that you're kind of paying a little bit more attention to. And the concept of the clones is cool. I mean, looking at them and seeing, you know, oh shit, those look like stormtroopers. And of course, we finally get to see a face for Boba and his father Django. Of course we learned that Boba is actually not just the child of Django, but he's a he's an unaltered child clone of him, which is cool. And by the way, it was really cool to see Tamora Morrison come back in uh, the Mandalorian to play Boba. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Django was something I remember being very fearful of going into the movie because it's like, oh no, they're messing with Boba Fett. I may be wary on this one, especially when they're casting a child as Boba Fett. But I walked out pretty content and I really do think there's like a great shot where after Django's been beheaded and you have like young Boba holding the head up, you know, the helmet up to his own head. Like that is a shot that just unto itself really does work very strongly. You know, star Wars should work entirely visually. Um, That's sort of the whole point of them in the beginning was that it should be like silent films almost where you can just follow along even without the dialogue in moments like that, I think, tap into that. Yeah, well, look at the uh, child actor that they use for Boba. I mean, he just has, like, the perfect face for Boba. He just has a scowl on his face the entire time. It's like, yeah, that's Boba Fett. Uh, that's how I would imagine he would look underneath that helmet. Yeah, just, I just can see scowl, that. Just a scowl, you know? Mm-hmm. I could see that. And, and he does actually resemble Tamora Morrison quite a bit. He does, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually a good fit for the both characters. Yeah. But yeah, we, we, we start to get the, the rumblings of this. And, and at the end of episode two is where we finally see, you know, we, we kind of for the first time see firsthand that, hold on, the Republic is becoming the Empire. I mean, we've got all the stormtroopers here. Uh, we've got the Imperial March theme. You know, we, it, it's, a, it's, it's a Republican name only at this point. You know, you've got, we've got a fascist dictator who is outlived his his term <laughs> yeah definitely and you also see the star destroyers and the star destroyers yeah that's the first time you see that in the series yeah it's it's actually really really interesting where lucas is going with that and and you kind of are you're seeing the beginnings of the empire and quite a bit of anakin's angsty moments which come across not great um no. do contribute towards you know obviously this kid was going to become darth vader so you get to start see rumblings of that, you know. You wanna, you, you get hints that, of course, you know, Anakin is has his doubts. He feels that he is being held back. Um, he's supposed to be space Jesus, but you know, nobody nobody trusts him. He has this this uh, tenuous relationship with his mentor figure Obi Wan. And, and too bad we really didn't get a whole lot of interaction between them in Episode One, but they do kind of make up for it here and in Episode Three. Um, if you really want to see the extent of Anakin and Obi-Wan, watch the Clone Wars. That's where they mm. shine the best and have the best chemistry. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we do get, you know, hints of that. And, of course, we get not just the men, but the women and the children, too. <laughs> I killed them all. I, I slaughtered them. them like animals. 
Oh, God, that delivery in that line is just like, oh, come on. This is almost as bad as the romance parts. Jesus. I do like the moment, though, after he finds his mom and she dies, where you see him just walk out and just pull out the lightsaber and just start swatting down Tusken Raiders. Like, to me, that speaks to a darkness of the character. Again, visually, leave it visual. It's okay to not have characters double down and start speaking essentially what the character's emotional journey is. We already understand what that character is going through. So that moment, just the, you know, outside the tent is pretty effective. But the dialogue, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, his rage just comes out entirely. We get to see a little bit of that Vader, you know? Yeah, that, that's that's the first time we see Vader. You know, out. and Vader was generally more calm and collected, but he was a force to be reckoned with when he was enraged. Oh, yeah. He, you piss Vader off. I mean, you're probably not going to walk away from it. I mean, look at the scene that later comes in, uh, in Rogue One actually oh, kind of yeah. compare that i mean that that's the violent vader that we're seeing here um and and i and, and that part I, I i do enjoy it's if anakin was just not such a thoroughly unlikable character in episode two and i'm not sure how intentional that is yeah you know i think people forget that uh that we were all teenagers at some point right and i mean i i like to call him hoarding uh, horny christensen at this point <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, let's face it, um, Natalie Portman would cause us all to break a few vows, I think, uh, to the Jedi Order, or any vow, particularly. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I, I understand that angle, I have to say. I mean, he he sees a pretty lady, and he, and he wants to, to be with her, and she wants him, too. It's not like she's saying no, particularly. It's all very consensual, just a bit a bit naughty. And, and that's what teenagers do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I get him. He's just a bit of an angsty teenager who's not understood, man. He's got long hair. Well, not at this point, actually, to be fair. But uh, I, I kind of get that. I don't like the dialogue, all the sand stuff. I mean, uh, apart from the meme potential, it's <laughs> awful. But, um, it, I, and yeah, it's, there's no chemistry between the two of them whatsoever. But it is, I, I can kind of get where he's coming from, at least. I understand that, like, people don't understand me and then, my mum dies. I just get angry at this establishment, and and that's being fed by you know Palpatine in the background. So I I quite like that they're doing that. It makes sense. It's not far off of like the teenager yelling at their parents, like you don't know what it's like to be in love, you know things like that. It, <laughs> yes. it has that sort of writing to it. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. I agree with everything that you just said. I mean, he definitely has those vibes, and I I guess he's just at kind of at a later age because he's supposed to be what nineteen or twenty here. You know, it's kind of a late teenager. I guess he's 19 because he's nine in The Phantom Menace. This is 10 years later. This is the kind of behavior I would see out of like a 15 or 16-year-old, maybe 17. But um, but maybe because he's been sheltered and he's been taught to, to you know, like to not have any attachments and to uh, not express these kinds of feelings so openly that, you know, I, I, you kind of get this, this sheltered teenager. You know, I think he's teenage in mentality. At least you could explain it that way. Um, if only it really was he was just a horny teenager and not that, uh, well, actually, she is in love with him. And we, we, we kind of predicate the entire plot on this later. Yeah. But like you said, I mean, it does play out well whenever you look at it from that angle. And, and that's kind of what I've always said to myself when I've watched it. And that's why I can go th- watch through, you know, I can cringe through Attack of the Clones. Uh, it's not as bad as everyone says it. It is a little cringy, but you, again, there's a teenager. You I know? found it very interminable, honestly. <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> well, it's got that pacing issue that you can also point to um, Phantom Menace about, too. Maybe, maybe worse so than Phantom Menace, where it's yeah. just like, like, George, come on, pick up the pace. Like, I remember 
you know, there's so much footage of him shooting the um, original and like his main direction was just faster and more intense, faster and more intense. Like that's what the actors would always start to ridicule him for at a certain point, because he was always like, this is a fast paced movie. And I don't think he was shouting that same direction on the set of episodes one and two. This republic be split in two. My negotiations will not fail. If they do, there aren't enough Jedi to protect the Republic. We're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. You know I don't like it when you do that. Sorry, Master. I forgot you don't like flying. Well, you've lost him. If you'll excuse me. I hate it when he does that. Anakin. Don't do anything without first consulting either myself or the Council. You don't need guidance, Anakin. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi. The boy has exceptional skills. His abilities have made him arrogant. Excuse me. I'm in charge of security here, m'lady. They are using a bounty hunter named Jango Fett to create a clone army. Wait. Must stop them before they're ready. Your clones are very impressive. They'll do their job well. Blast! That's why I hate flying. This is a crisis. The Senate must vote the Chancellor emergency powers. As my first act, I will create a grand army of the Republic to counter the increasing threats of the Separatists. Hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. You must join me, Obi-Wan. And together, we will destroy the Sith. The dark side clouds everything. In grave danger, you are. Obviously not. No. no. Yeah. Not not as much. But I suppose we'll sort of wrap up part one here. We're going to continue recording, but we'll be releasing this episode in two parts. But um, for everyone out there uh, listening, where can our listeners find the Spy Hearts podcast? Well, uh, for spies, we're exceedingly easy to find. Um, you can basically find us at Spy Hearts. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on any social media platform you can think of and any uh, podcast app or network you can think of too, we're there. Excellent. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, guys, definitely go check out their podcast and stick around. Uh, in a couple weeks from the moment we uh, release this, we'll have out part two uh, where we talk about uh, any other lingering thoughts we had on episode two and, of course, get into episode three and maybe a little bit of the Clone Wars. But uh, where can we work? Where, where can our listeners listen to Collateral Cinema, Bo? You can uh, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Chill Lover Radio, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can find us on all the social media apps at C Cinema Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Hell yeah. Uh, we also do have a Patreon where we release full-length movie commentaries, and we should have more on the way. I don't know. Maybe we should do a Star Wars movie. Seems kind of our thing. Well, yeah, seems like it. Seems like it. I don't yeah. know. Maybe we could do something not one of the prequels, but, I mean, if we had to pick one, I'd probably pick the, Revenge of the Sith. The Star Wars Holiday the Special. The Star Wars Holiday Special! The Star Wars Holiday Special. That's what we'll do. <laughs> I don't know, maybe we could do a commentary on Rogue One or something, or I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, stick around for part two where we get into Revenge of the Sith. Um, that actually deserves, I think, even more talking time than the other two episodes, in my opinion. I think it's the best of the three. But yeah, um, but yeah, uh, stick around. And uh, that being said, I'm Ashley Chancellor. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Agent Scott. I'm Cam the Provocateur. And this has been Collateral Cinema. Stick around and... Two weeks. Two weeks, exactly. Cinema is a collateral media podcast. All music and movie clips are owned by the respective creators and are used for educational purposes only. Please don't sue us. We're poor.